You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we've broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, welcome to 3C um, Breakfast. Good morning, Dean. I nearly said Thursday breakfast, but uh, it's Monday today. It is, Um, yeah. It's not Wednesday or Thursday. No, not yet. It's not yet. (laughs) No, no, we're just talking about our past breakfast lives. Yeah, that's right, that's right. (laughs) We're happy it's Monday. It is. Uh, I look forward to Mondays. Um, And the, the weather for Melbourne today, partly cloudy. Um, with a strong wind warning for Port Phelps, Central Coast and Central Gippsland. A top of 14 today with no chance of rain. But tomorrow, um, a top of 16, chance of showers in the southeastern suburbs. So there's a 70% chance of rain tomorrow. So get your brolly. Really. Get your brolly, get your brolly but brolly. Yeah. yeah, this morning was pretty mild. No, no frost. Yeah. Well, that's always the sign for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. No frost on the windshield. Then when I got up and, uh, and uh, also it's July the 1st. Yes. Yes. 2019. Wow. Everything starts to ramp up after the, <laughs> on, from July the 1st. Well, July the 1st, I need to report, is Canada Day. Yes. Is it really? It yeah. really yeah. is. It really is. Yeah. So it's like, you know, um, you're our, um, our Australia Day. Australia, yeah. uh, although it doesn't, it doesn't have the controversy attached to it that Australia Day does here. However, that's not to say that Indigenous peoples have fared well in Canada. Of course, mm. of course mm. not. But it, but it is Canada Day. So for people in Canada who will be sleeping in and, you know, enjoying <laughs> yeah. and watching the fireworks. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that you do on Canada Day that... Nothing. No fireworks are the main thing that yeah. I remember, and people, yeah, just relaxing and yeah. and it's summer. And yeah, yeah, I, I was going to say, if summer. it was winter, they'd all be playing hockey every day. They would be playing <laughs> hockey, and I like the way you said that because uh, usually hockey in Australia is ground hockey, right? Yeah, yeah. So I had to learn to say ice hockey so people would know what I meant. Mm. Yeah, but interestingly enough, I played hockey for years because I, I I just did. Um, you know, the people, Ice the community. Hockey. No, 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 uh, field hockey. Field hockey, The yeah. people were more welcoming than the soccer crowd. And I didn't realise that in Canada, field hockey was quite big as well. Oh, of yeah, course. Yeah, you just yeah. assume it's just yeah, It's like yeah. Australia, any sport, you know, yeah. the sport man. Mm-hmm. I think the, the one sport that is a Canadian sport is lacrosse, which yeah. has come from Indigenous, indigenous people. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yes. And, 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 of course, Aussie rules yeah. has a strong Indigenous connection yeah. here in Australia as well. Yeah. Interesting. interesting. Mm-hmm. In, yeah. in the UK, it's usually um, like the real middle-class schools and the private schools that go for lacrosse and hockey. Oh, so So we learnt it, but we didn't do much of it we had it a little bit i was just in a a generic state school so it was just netball rounders uh football that was it i don't even know of that and cricket and yeah boys cricket we didn't get to play cricket but you know 
Yeah, what, what's rounders? Rounders is is like a form of kind of similar to baseball. Oh. Real basic, and it's a lot. The bat's a lot shorter, oh. and you just do it with one hand. So you just have a one-handed bat, and I then you drop it and run. I, I call that softball. No, <laughs> t-ball, t-ball, where we had to put the ball on the stand and then just hit it. Oh no, we don't have a stand. <laughs> There's a bowler and everything. Well, so that's your sport for the morning here on. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and, and just to, uh, following on on that, uh, I did. Well, I was having a quick look at the Canadian First Nations people, um, and it says that there are 634 recognised First Nations governments um, or bands spread across Canada, roughly half of which are in the provinces of Ontario and British Columbia. So that's a, a, a fair number. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, and um, we, as of well, the dates are the seventh to the fourteenth of July, are going to be celebrating Voice Treaty Truth. Let's work together for a shared future, and this is in reference to NADOC Week celebrations, which are held across Australia each July to celebrate the history, culture, and achievements of our Indigenous people, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Um, the awards were actually on the 29th, so it's m- it's more than just those specific dates of the so, 7th. So people are in celebration already, oh, yeah, yeah. So hopefully week. we get, yeah. um, you know, might try and get somebody from Vacho next week and have a bit of a Beyond the Bars tribute, seeing as yeah. they're doing it all again. Yeah, it's like the uh, 20th, 21st yeah. year or something. It's, amazing. it's quite long. Yeah. Um, what's on the show today? Well, oh gosh, another big show. I mean, in a way, following on, because we've been, we had been um, looking at what had been happening between the U.S. and Iran. That's now generally off the, the news cycle as other meetings have come on to it. But we've been kind of curious about what would happen if um, Australia got drawn in, if there were, were war. So a couple of people of our guests will be uh, talking about that. One is... Um, First of all, not first coming up, but um, coming up around 7.30, we'll have Richard Tanter, Professor Richard Tanter. He's going to be telling us about the role of Pine Gap in Australia. And so I won't say more about that. I'll leave that. So he'll talk about that, and but also how it would be involved if, if a war did occur. And um, we're also going to... Um, Hear from Senator Rex Patrick, who's, uh, some of you may, you know, this has been in the news, uh, talking about Christopher Pine, who moved from ministry, Minister of Defense. I see you smiling over there, <laughs> Dean, you know the story. <laughs> Minister of Defense, for Defense, rather, uh, to being a consultant with EY, Ernst & Young, an international company which uh, is very interested in the defense uh, area. Mm. So we're going mm. to hear from Rex, pa- Rex Patrick. P- plum that. jobs for for mates, as they say. Well, it's, and uh, you know, he was it was he was barely out of Parliament, Christopher Pine, when yeah. he took up this position. So, what are the implications of that? Well, it was probably the one and only time that his hair actually moved <laughs> just between that transition. <laughs> You've been keeping an eye, <laughs> keeping an eye on this. Well, I've been calling him Wiggy, P- Wiggy Pine. <laughs> it's always the same; never goes anywhere. Well, I wonder if it's moving a bit this morning since we're talking. Yeah. That can no, be the next feature. Next yeah. week's feature. Next week we'll be we'll do be doing. <laughs> <laughs> here, I hear feature next week. Um, and uh, after eight, we're going to be um, speaking with Peter Owen. Now, we all know what Nopsema is, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> in the 
<laughs> I'm not sure looking at everyone's face. Yeah, yeah I, I can't say it again, yeah, no, but no, we know what it is. We know what it is, yeah. So we, we, we've been waiting to hear whether the drilling Equinor's proposal, is, uh, the um, Norwegian company's proposal to drill, explore, in the Great Australian Bight would be approved by NOPSEMA. Mm. And uh, it, the, the deadline was a couple of months ago, and then they've extended it, and the second deadline was on Thursday last yeah, week. that's right. Yeah, yeah, remember that. So Peter Owen from... Um, the um, I'm sorry from the AC, no, not the ACF, the Wilderness Society, is going to come on to tell us what the meaning of this latest delay is, the latest report. So that's that's happening at eight, and after eight, and I, this is now we've all learned Nopsim, and now we all have to learn Popomoko. How, how are you going? Let's see, <laughs> Popomoko. Poposcomo. No, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> antithesis of Poposcomo, but I think that's a good, <laughs> interesting subversion. So Popomoco, they've got a show on uh, once. It's, it, it's going to be on at Footscray Community Arts Centre, and they're going to tell us all about it. Fantastic. And it sounds like great fun, and that's coming up about 8.15. Yeah. Mm. And then at 7.15, oh, no. have we got any more from you? No, I don't think no. I Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was like, jam-packed. You just yeah. got something else up her sleeve. What else are you going to bring to the table? Um but yeah, at 7.15 we'll be speaking to Fergus Kennard about um, basically why are Coles and Woolworths buying into the Business Council of Australia, which is a... Oh, interesting story. It's an interesting story and it's a story that we definitely don't know enough about because we see on the surface Coles and Woolworths appearing to make big efforts on the climate and environment changes in store but we don't see the money going behind the scenes so Fergus is going to fill us in about why they're buying into this particular lobbying group which okay. is known for climate wrecking well it's, it's yeah it's quite a unique and weird sort of situation where these consumer focused businesses such as Woolies, Caltex, Tabcorp, McDonald's and their centre are on the Business Council of Australia yeah. And, you know, uh, when had they all, all of a sudden started joining the Business Council of Australia? Oh, well, be fascinating. Do they have? Mm. Yeah. We look yeah. forward to hearing from Ferguson. We always love having him on the show, so that, that's terrific. And uh, so since, you know, in the anticipation that NADOC Week is upon us in such a fabulous way and recognizing that Kucha Edwards, um, you know, has been the, the voice behind Beyond the Bars for many, many years, we're going to start today with uh, Kucha and Circles. Wake up every morning Put the kettle on Realize it's almost midday Half the day is gone Cause mornings ain't easy To get out of bed So again, get along to the old Concrete Gang and your radio thon pull-up for 3CR Radio, Monday, July the 8th, 11am onwards at the Albion Hotel, uh, which is now known as the Northport Hotel at 146 Evans Street, Port Melbourne. $20 entry, and that gets you in the door, a feed, listen to Phil Parra, one of the greatest bands going around, and a chance to win a $500 door prize. Be there or be square. See you then. It's not too late to donate 
It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 94198377 or check our website 3cr.org.au. Not too late to donate. And it isn't too late to donate. And uh, we'd love to have your um, your support. So, yeah, if you can, just um, give us a call here at uh, 3CR on nine four one nine eight three double seven. And uh, there's lots of other ways. You can go online, online to donate. Yeah. And you can text us in as well. Yeah, what's the text number? I'm just trying to find it. <laughs> uh, 0488809855. Say that again. Oh, yeah. 0488809855. Eight oh nine eight five five. You're pledging your support for a more equitable media landscape with, uh, you know, um, I guess the freedom that we have here at 3CR in a very, very concentrated media landscape. Yeah, and um, now we're just going to move uh, Popomoko ahead because, um, yeah, we're just uh, having a bit of technical problems getting in touch with um, Fergus. So... I'm just wondering, uh, can you remember? I mean, I had a lot of trouble saying Popo Moco. You got you two both did a lot better. <laughs> Popo Moco. Popo, yeah. Popo uh, but if you need help remembering that, because as you say, I did not a, that memory just saying even saying it. Just think post post modern comedy, and, 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 and you'll already be kind of laughing because <laughs> you, you got to think that's a bit of a mistake somehow. So it's an experimental queer comedy troupe. They're going to be performing Once Upon a Drag Storytime at Footscray Community Arts Centre on July the 13th. So uh, the troupe's resident drag blokes are Kimberly Twiner, Holly Goodman and Lily Fish. And they're getting technical support and other support as well, lots of support from David Manny. And they're going to bring to life three inclusive kids' books. But I'll let Kimberly Twiner tell you more. And uh, But just let let everyone know, I did again go over to Footscray Community Arts Centre. Every time I go, I'm inspired. It's, there's always something amazing. Right now, the Footscray Arts Exhibition's on. So anyway, I spoke to Kimberly Twiner, and uh, I started by asking her about the resident drag blokes. So there's three of us, myself, Lily, and Hallie, and we play these three drag blokes. And we've named them after our fathers, because when we first came up with them, we just thought, it was funny, and they were the first kind of names that came to our heads. So in a way, there, there is some spirit of our father energy in these characters, but they're also a little bit 80s as well. They're a little bit on the 80s daggy, daggy cool side. Not daddy cool, but daggy cool. Daggy cool, not daddy cool. Probably two seventies. Though there is a good pair of flared pants that Keith wears, actually. I'm very excited. <laughs> what colour are they? It's um navy pinstripe with a white pinstripe. It's a three piece. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm already coming to the show. Let's just say that. <laughs> 
So how did you blokes get together? The blokes are part of Popomoko. We were formed after a bunch of us studied at John Bolton Theatre School in Melbourne. So I was looking for a reason to keep getting together and practising what we learnt and devising work together. So I said like, oh, okay, let's get together once a week and make some new stuff and do a show every month. That sounds incredibly (laughs) ambitious to do a show every month. I know that now. We did this for about nine months or ten months. The blokes didn't really exist then. Oh, so so the blokes have kind of evolved. Yes, they started as roving characters because they just they look great in their kind of matching suits and their terrible wigs and beautiful facial hair. And so they started as roving characters. They were silent and always doing these in-sync dance moves out in the public. They really attracted people to want to boogie with them in this very just silent, physical relationship with strangers. So we thought these are really charming, lovely, quite safe characters people feel safe approaching their space so then we kind of had the idea of going down a drag story time road with them which is cool because most drag story times are drag queens not drag kings or drag blokes when did that emerge that story we put together a drag story time for Woodford Folk Festival up in Queensland two years ago. We had a drag queen in the troupe at the time, so she ran that. The response was quite profound, especially because this was in Queensland, which has a different energy around queer and rainbow politics compared to Melbourne. So the response was very moving. People coming to watch it who are queer parents bringing new babies, like babies who couldn't understand anything, but this is the kind of thing that they want to be around. And then we had 16 and 17 year old people coming every day. And we, we were just thinking, you're too old for this. But They were there for a reason, and to have that space happening was really quite moving for us because we thought, obviously, there's some people here that this is their story, and they want to be here for their story. I feel moved just hearing you tell me about it. It was quite touching, and Woodford is a very beautiful place. There's this thing at Woodford where you can send a letter to anyone in the festival, so anyone you see... At the festival, the posties will try to find for you. So even, you might know their name, you might not know their name. They might be an artist, they might be someone working at one of the cafes. But you can write a letter, say, to the beautiful woman with big sparkly eyes, piggy tails, and wears the purple dungarees every day. You put this in the post office and the Woodford posties will try to find this person. It might end up at the right person or the wrong person, but they deliver. And we received a lot of extremely touching letters from children, from children telling us, please never stop doing what you're doing. This is so important. Thank you for bringing your queer rainbows to Woodford. And all of these incredibly moving things written from the hands of children. And we will just... You know, we'd done 40 shows that week, and by the time we got our post, we were just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what we do is important.
put it. Oh, my gosh. What an affirming experience to have. Yeah, it was incredibly affirming because it wasn't easy to do 40 shows in 40-degree heat in five days. It was incredibly moving that we got that feedback in that form from these wonderful little humans. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Kimberly Twiner. She's from Popomoko, talking about their experiences of performing Once Upon a Drag Storytime at the Woodford Folk Festival. But now Melbourne audiences can see it at the Footscray Community Arts Centre on Saturday the 13th. I asked Kimberly how long Popomoko has been together. Next year will be our fourth year. The ensemble has changed. People have come and people have gone, but we've got a bit of a core troupe now that we have some solid shows with. Drag Storytime is one of the ones that we really want to put out into the world, into, into Australia. So just tell me about this particular show that's going to be on at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Once Upon a Drag Storytime is a show with the three blokes. They read three different queer kids' books, so three totally gorgeous, inclusive kids' books that promote feminism, gender identity, being fluid and free, same-sex relationships and same-sex families. The three blokes read these stories, and we've got a sketch that accompanies the books, so there's a puppetry sketch, there's a, you know, a big giant whale that comes through the crowd made from recycled materials, plastic, and there's a mini pantomime and a mini talent show. Do you combine a range of skills? Do you all do all of those things, like physical theatre and um, puppetry, or do different members of the troupe specialise? Some people have stronger skills than others, but underneath all is um, a really strong foundation of clown training. Treating the audience without a fourth wall, so everything is very present with the audience. A sense of naivety in the play, so everything is very fresh and being performed for the only time. It's all happening right here, right now. Played 100%. Just play it 100%. And that was Kimberly Twiner from Popomoko, and they'll be performing Once Upon a Drag Storytime at Footscray Community Arts Centre on July 13th at 2pm. But do check, as always, I always encourage people, check out the Footscray Community Arts website because there'll be lots more details and, um, yeah, and you can also see what else is going on. But I think better book your tickets quickly because those blokes are pretty amazing yeah <laughs> and uh, and i have a feeling they're going to sell fast um, so it's aimed for kids yeah yeah it's yeah. aimed for kids uh, although popomoko's done lots of adult stuff as yeah. well and if you, if you go onto their website which is uh, www.popomoko.com you can actually see what else they've done a great great show and it I sounds mean, brilliant i mean <laughs> just talking right. to kimberly i kept smiling and kept laughing i did try to get her to to do a lip sync for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't work on radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She said, I don't think you're going to get much. Yeah. <laughs> because lip sync is one of the things that they have down as, as among their skills. But also, they're also going to be conducting theatre workshops for children at the centre over school holidays. Mm. So, again, to go to the Footscray Community Arts Centre website, you can find out more about that as well. You know, might go to a, a, a song by the Dregs called Just For One Night, which uh, might be in reference to the 13th.
You might get a chance to hear them. Yeah. It's time now to um, introduce our next story. Yes, and uh, I had an opportunity last week to speak with Professor Richard Tanter. And uh, the background to that is uh, over the past few weeks, as, as you all know, we've been watching developments between the US and Iran, the Middle East, and, and wondering how Australia would be affected if the two countries were to go to war. Professor Richard Tanter is a senior research associate with the, the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability. He's an honorary professor in the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Uh, and he, there he teaches in the areas of nuclear weapons and disarmament and Australian foreign policy. So Richard's been keeping an eye on, on a foreign, both foreign policy but also on Pine Gap and what's been going on there. He's, he's written extensively about it. And Pine Gap is the joint defense facility. I say joint because it's meant to be, you know, a joint facility between the U.S. and Australia. It's about 20 kilometers from Alice Springs, and I still run into people in Australia who, who don't know what it is mm. or have some vague memory. You know, back in the 80s, there were those demonstrations, so yeah. people do often associate it with that. A lot of people don't even know where Swan Bay is, the base down there, really. Swan Bay is where? Uh, Queenslip. Okay. You know, we okay. had all the yep. protesters yep. who got because they trained SAS down there. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. So well, there you go. Another something for most for me to <laughs> meet on. Thanks, Dean. Something for me to find out more about. So anyway, I caught up with Richard at the Bellier Library at the University of Melbourne, and I began by just asking him about the establishment of Pine Gap. Well, Pine Gap has been there now for more than half a century. That's older than. Uh, Many of our listeners, I think, will be. It's been around for a very long time. It's an extraordinary United States intelligence base. It's probably the biggest outside the United States itself. It's formerly a joint Australian-United States uh, facility. It was built by the United States. It operates as a ground station for giant American satellites in space. It's paid for primarily by the United States. Australia now has roughly equal numbers of people working there to the United States, but it's better probably thought of as an American base to which we have some access. It's a set of very big ears for space-based uh, interception of transmissions from other countries, some of them our allies, and it also has big infrared eyes, satellites in space, which pick up the, the heat bloom of the launch of missiles. It's incredibly important to the United States. I'm wondering how much Australians actually know about Pine Gap. That's a really good question to ask. I actually think that Australians know a lot in the sense they all know Pine Gap's there, but it's rather like a sort of dirty little secret at the back of our minds. Many Australians think of Uluru as the centre of our country, and I think that's a very good thing. Other people think of Pine Gap as the centre of our country, and they mean that in a good way, that this is the assurance that the American alliance is robust, the Americans will protect us, uh, she'll be right. It's ugly, it's nasty, but Richard, it will save us. So I think at that level, many people do know about Pine Gap, and many people I speak to in your profession start out talking about Pine Gap in positive ways, but then get to the end point of saying, doesn't that mean that Pine Gap might be a nuclear target? 
And indeed, it was undoubtedly during the Cold War and the Defence Department knew it. Officials such as uh, the Foreign Minister and the Prime Minister and the Hawke Government admitted this. I think the Defence Department knows it still is a prime nuclear target in the event of war, in particular between the United States and Russia. At a lower level of priority, a war between the United States and China, only because the Chinese do not have as many missiles as the Russians. Why is it a target? It's a target for two reasons. One is those infrared eyes, the satellites with the big infrared telescopes down linking to Pine Gap, they give the United States warning of the launch of an enemy missile attack, giving the United States president the proverbial 15 minutes to decide how the rest of the world is going to go to Armageddon. What's often not said is that that same technology then allows the United States to work out which missile silos have fired and which ones remain to be fired and therefore become prime targets in their own right. In other words, Pine Gap's an important part of nuclear post-attack targeting, as it's called in the, the military. That's the first reason. So if Australia joins the US in a war, or maybe even if it doesn't join, it's likely that the opposing country is going to want to make sure that information will not get to the United States. That's exactly right. Destroying Pine Gap is one way of at least reducing that capacity. Now you wouldn't be wanting to live in Alice Springs then? You certainly wouldn't. Alice Springs would be an appalling uh, nuclear sacrifice zone in the event of an attack on Pine Gap. The other reason why Pine Gap is, as the military talk about it, a lucrative target for China or Russia is that the main part of the base, the signals intelligence, the big ears that are listening to phones, radio communications, radars and so on, these play an enormously important role in the command and control of nuclear forces and also of conventional forces. For that reason, also, Pine Gap is, was and still would be, I believe, uh, a fairly high-priority nuclear target. For those reasons, Pine Gap also plays a role in American global military operations in both the infrared eyes, part if you like, and the big ears. The big ears are listening, we know famously, to people who are suspected of terrorism and may well be terrorists, using their phones in war zones in Afghanistan, Iraq, but also in areas in countries which neither the United States nor Australia is at war. Pakistan, Ethiopia, Sudan, Yemen... And that's uh, Professor Richard Tanter, if you've just tuned in to Monday Breakfast here at 3CR. And uh, he's been telling us about the role of Pine Gap in the U.S. intelligence gathering. And um, then I asked him whether Pine Gap would be already playing a role in the surveillance, for example, of Iran, given the recent tensions. I have no doubt it is doing so right now. Pine Gap would have every week and every day a kind of tasking schedule. What are we doing today? What are the satellites going to be pointed at? For a long time, Pine Gap and its companion station in Britain, Menwith Hill, working together, are concentrating on what the military would call the electronic order of battle for Iran. Where are their radars? How capable are they? How can they be jammed? Where are the communications of their high command and their regional command, their battalion level commands? Can we find them? In current war, if you can find it, you can destroy it. The destruction part is not really something that the Americans have to worry about in that appalling rationality. 
So when um, Donald Trump was saying they had three sites they were going to attack in Iran, I think it was just a week, a week and a half ago, would some of that information about those sites have been provided by Pine Gap? I've no doubt that Pine Gap was collecting information that led to the selection of those targets. Again, sharing it with Menworth Hill, it's a system as a whole, but Pine Gap is very closely involved. That's exactly what it's designed to do now. If war does occur between the U.S. and Iran, if hostilities break out, and we're all hoping that never happens, if Australia decides not to join the U.S. in this venture, would Pine Gap still be in use around it? In pragmatic terms, I'd say undoubtedly it would. We are hardwired into these kind of uh, operations. The Australian government, all Australian governments, have always said since the Hawke era that Pine Gap operates with the full knowledge and concurrence of the Australian government. They say that doesn't mean we agree with everything that goes on there, but we agree with the mission descriptions. What that raises is the question of whether an Australian government would ever have the spine to say to the United States, well, we do not concur in its use of this operation, and we wish you to give an assurance that Pine Gap will not be used in relation to say, a war in Iran. Even if the Australian government said that, is it even possible to extricate Pine Gap from those operations? It technically would be possible if Australia knew enough about it, but eventually it would come down to pulling the plug. Whether that's technically possible, I don't know. What it really means is they would be challenging the deepest aspect of the Australian alliance with the United States. It's technically integrated into the US global command and control system, nuclear and non-nuclear. Australians work at Pine Gap. Australians work in the companion stations in the United States. We are very closely integrated. There are careers in the Australian Defence Force built around those sort of connections. We talk about whether Australia knows what happens at Pine Gap. One of the key questions I think we have to ask is whether senior Australian politicians actually understand what goes on at Pine Gap. They get briefings, they get tours. Do they actually understand that in, for example, in the event of war with Iran by the United States, we will be drawn into it technologically and we would have to work to get out of it and it's not clear that we could do so. Moreover, it's a bit more complicated again. It's not just a matter of those big ears are not just on Pine Gap and the big infrared eyes are not just from Pine Gap or its satellites. There are other intelligence platforms like large aircraft about the size of a 727 owned by the United States and Australia. We sent them to Iraq and to go over Syria. These systems connect to each other. They all produce the kind of targeting uh, information that enables the destruction of an Iranian air capacity, for example, air defence capacity. That's much more important than sending troops in military terms. That's why the United States likes Australia, why they like Australia buying this equipment, why they like Australia being integrated into the, not just in Pine Gap, but the communications, the military communication systems on which all of this American military power to destroy an, an enemy depends. We're plugged in. And that was Professor Richard Tanter from the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability, and he's also an honorary professor at the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and talking about the ramifications of the Australian-US alliance and uh, 
the role of Pine Gap should hostilities break out between the U.S. and another country. And um, I was very interested in saying that a lot of uh, senior politicians may not uh, fully understand. understand. Yeah. yeah, and also it's really important that as a community we understand yeah. more, I think, because, you know, all of this needs to be taken into consideration when new bills come in and mm. uh, decisions are being made. So and the uh, fact that they just get briefings, like, oh, yeah, come and visit our... Our workplace. And well, oh, I think yeah. they have. No, yeah. I think they do have tours. Yeah, but, yeah, but visiting is. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's what, like what a way to in invite them tour? in without yeah. actually giving them any information. Yeah. Not enough information to. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think also that um, you know he was speculating yeah. about how much they know, so we probably can't draw too much. But really pointing out that you know we do need to know more as do mm. our politicians, and so. If we want to find out more, there's actually a public forum <laughs> this week. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah, interestingly organized for July the 4th. Yep. We yeah. all know what July the 4th is. Yeah, yeah in, a, in America they call it, I think, Independence, Independence Day. Independence Day, yeah. In, in Canada we call it the American Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the public forum is called Keep Australia Out of U.S. Wars. It's on at Trades Hall, Victoria Trades Hall. 4th of July at 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. And Richard Tanter will be speaking, but also Vince Scapatura. And he was on the show last Last week, week. yeah, Yeah, talking about the U.S. lobby and Australia defense policy. I also suspect there's a little spruik here. He'll have his book. Yep. yep. <laughs> that's the title of his book. And you might even get a, you'll be able to buy it and you might even be able to get it signed. Signed. Yes. <laughs> so if you go along to Trades Hall, um, to the forum Keep Australia Out of U.S. Wars, and that's organized by the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. So you can also go to their website and find okay. out more about their activities. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Well, who? We are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty is time. Enroll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. Um, Hard Rouge, a French-Canadian group. I don't know that they're still together with Dieu Côté, with God on our side. And, um, of course, you'll know that as a Bob Dylan song. And uh, this is from an album, a nod to Bob on his 60th birthday. And to me, that was the most lovely song on that album. I really liked it. And, uh, of course, the song goes through all the different countries that the U.S. has been at war with. And finishes up saying, and of course, with God on our side, and ends up saying, you know, if God's on our side, he'll stop the next war. For those um, people listening who already know that so well, my apologies, but it's <laughs> always possible there are people who don't. So that was uh, in beautiful French, the French-Canadian group Heart Rouge. I want to give a shout-out to 3CR. Two groups of 3CR here. We've got Wednesday Ripping. We've got Radioactive, 
And, like, for the heart and soul of documenting stuff that goes on in this city of five million people, bloody magnificent institution as well as revolutionary radio. Did you know volunteering contributes to a happier life? Want to know what you can do to make a difference in your local community of Whittlesea? Whittlesea Community Connections hold a volunteer information session every month. It is a friendly session where you get to meet others and be linked to not-for-profit organisations. Contact Michelle from Whittlesea Community Connections on 94016630 or visit our website www.whittleseacc.org.au to find out more. A 3CR supporter. You're on 855am3cr.org.au digital. And it's getting closer around 10 to 8 if you're, there's somewhere you need to get to <laughs> this morning. <laughs> okay, so last week we heard, just the end of last week, actually we heard that the former Defence Minister, Christopher Pine, has taken a job with the international consulting firm Ernst & Young, which is generally known as EY. And uh, that's how lots of people refer to it. So EY, another acronym <laughs> for us. Uh, and he's there to help grow its defense business. Now, in 2016, when Christopher Pine took on the defense industry portfolio, so I was interested to see there's two. There's the defense um, minister for defense, and there's also minister for defense industry. So there's two different positions. So obviously defense is big. Um, and so he took on that portfolio, and Australia's defense industry almost tripled in the next um, year or two. So, obviously, Mr. Pine was a big spender on defense, obviously with the support from the government. But um, And we have to speculate that that must have earned him some friends in the defense industry. You'd think that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this latest move to EY has raised a lot of questions, and particularly around ministerial standards. As Rex Patrick, Senator for South Australia with the Centre Alliance Party, has highlighted, I spoke to Rex, Rex Patrick last Friday, and this is what he had to say. Mr Pine, as you suggested, was the Defence Minister. He was also the leader of the government in the House and a member of Cabinet. He has knowledge of the broadest affairs of government and the intimate details of every significant matter in respect of the defence portfolio. He will have been briefed by defence, he will have been briefed by companies, he will have been briefed on plans that are not in the public domain. I'm of the view that Mr Pine wouldn't pass on any sensitive information. I know him well, but he can't unknow what he knows when he is forming up advice to give to EY. Now, that will raise probity issues with other companies who will be rightfully concerned about the advantage EY now has. Australia's been buying big in the defence industry, and, of course, there are debates about that as well. But this is a time when any firm is set to make quite a bit of money from Australia. There are plenty of opportunities for EY in this market. They have a right to tender for work uh, in that space. However, the concern will be that they have someone on board their staff who is privy to information that otherwise they wouldn't have and indeed other competing companies wouldn't have. Is this like insider trading? In some sense, yes, it is. 
The problem here is one that's encountered in, in industry as well. Normally, if you're the CEO of a company or a very senior person inside a company, when you leave the company, they have a mandatory gardening leave period is, is what it's often called. And the reason for that gardening leave, so the, the, the idea is you just go off and prune your garden uh, I like that uh, idea. Yeah, while, whilst time passes, so the, the information that you have about that company becomes dated. And that's the same problem we have here. It's dealt with by something called the Statement of Ministerial Standards, which is the PM's guidelines to ministers on their conduct. And it extends to ministers who have left the government. What kinds of things that do former uh, members of parliament or ministers have to be aware of? Well, I can just simply read from the standard. Ministers are required to undertake that for an 18-month period after ceasing to be a minister, they will not lobby, advocate or have business meetings with members of the government, parliament, public service or defence force on any matters on which they had official dealings as minister in their last 18 months in office. In that respect, former Minister Pine probably won't contact people. It's the next criteria which comes of concern, and that's where it says ministers are also required to undertake that on leaving office they will not take personal advantage of information to which they have had access as a minister where that information is not generally available to the public. Oh That's the problem in this particular instance. It is. How common is this sort of thing? Do people actually observe that 18-month guideline? This has happened before and this will continue to go on until a Prime Minister who sets those standards enforces the standards. This is now a test for the Prime Minister. It's a test of his conviction towards his own statement of ministerial standards. What's happened with Mr Pine is inappropriate. The PM must now call Mr Pine and if he gets nowhere he should direct Defence and other government agencies to cease using uh, or awarding any contracts to EY until the 18-month time period specified in the ministerial standards has expired. How likely is Scott Morrison to do this? This comes down to his integrity and his strong leadership. Do other countries have these same kind of ministerial requirements? I know for certain that the United States has a similar set of arrangements. It's typically designed to make sure that people have confidence in government. We can't have a situation where companies are going into a minister's office to brief the minister on their commercially sensitive bids, on their intellectual property, and then the minister moves on to another company where they can take advantage of that. that I mean, That's that just not sense. proper. You know, that, that makes absolute sense. But I do understand there's no real legal power to enforce those ministerial standards. Well, that goes to another issue, and that is that the Morrison government has not committed to an independent commission against corruption. You might recall that uh, in this parliament, Cathy McGowan, independent member for Indi, put a bill to the parliament which proposed an independent commission against corruption. That bill, had it been passed, would have created a commission that would have had jurisdiction to deal with this matter, breaches of, of the statement of ministerial standards. And what's happening to that bill? Well, that bill will expire when this parliament expires in a few days. It will be a matter of whether or not that's reintroduced. So the 
government is introducing its own bill in relation to uh, anti-corruption. However, that bill is extremely weak and quite disappointing. Didn't Christopher Pine refer to himself as the fixer when he was in Parliament? And now we have the Minister for Defence Industry, Melissa Price, describing herself as the deliverer. I'm curious about what she's going to deliver, but I'm wondering if she's going to team up with Christopher Pine in that delivery. I can't go to what may happen in that uh, area. There's no question that in 18 months' time, Christopher Pine, who's very well connected, can contact someone like Melissa Price. But he can also now sit in his office and say to people at EY, without revealing anything uh, sensitive that he knows, my suggestion is that you go and talk to Melissa Price about this particular matter. And he can do so knowing that there's some specific timing that would give EY advantage or that there is work that is suitable for EY that it would be useful bringing to the attention of the Defence Industry Minister. And that's the problem here. And I just want to conclude by saying that I don't begrudge Mr Pine. I actually quite like Mr Pine. But in my view, his decision here is an exercise of poor judgment and is inappropriate. And that was uh, Senator Rex Patrick and he's with the Centre Alliance Party. And it will be interesting to see if the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, does act on ministerial standards in this case. But, you know, we've had a couple of stories now that kind of relate to defence. One about Pine Gap, in mm. which Professor Richard Tanter said, you know, how well do uh, members of Parliament really understand what's going on there? And uh, in a, a story that came out also just a few days ago uh, from uh, Michael West, from his website, he's an investigative journalist, journalist and uh, he suggested in his article on this topic that defence is by far the biggest item of spending, yet it attracts almost no media attention. Yeah. So not yeah. only do we need to be better informed about you know, the military lines, what's going on, Pine Gap, we also need to be better informed about defence spending. But mm. uh, as Michael West also points out, because of the secrecy and because both major parties are loath to wedge on national security and not make a fuss, even as billions are being squandered on questionable projects. I love yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> billions being like squandered old, on old questionable... F-15 fighter jets that <laughs> yeah. are nearly out of retirement for one country, yeah. but we bought them. Uh, and then there's... Uh, but there's little visibility, little accountability. Mm. So something else that we need uh, better information on. And uh, he also concludes, apparently taxpayers who fund this mountain of government expenditure do not deserve to know how their money is being spent. So let's find out more. Come celebrate the end of Radiothon with the friendliest punks around. Greek Resistance Bulletin is throwing a party featuring pests, somatized, parlor, punter and gun laws on Saturday the 6th of July at Bar 303. That's 303 High Street in Northcote. Listen on Tuesdays at 10pm for news from the social movements of Greece in English and Greek. And join us to celebrate the diversity of punk and support community radio 3CR. Check out Greek Resistance Bulletin on Facebook for more details. Well, we've been following the campaign to prevent exploration for oil in the Great Australian Bite, the Great Australian Bite Alliance, and, uh, and waiting to hear whether or not SEMA, the National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environmental Management Authority, 
would approve the environmental plan put forward by Equinor, the Norwegian-owned company that plans to drill in the bayou. So NOPSEMA released its report late last week, and Peter Owen, the South Australia Director of the Wilderness Society, joins us on the phone from Adelaide to give us his take on the report. So Peter, I was waiting with some trepidation for the announcement last Thursday, which came in late uh, after close of business here, that's for sure, from NOPSEMA. I'm wondering, what has NOPSEMA decided effectively? Well, they've made a determination that they require further information uh, from Equinor, the oil company pushing for an approval to drill in the Great Australian Bight. As to what that further information is, um, that hasn't been made public. Um, we've obviously, uh, you know, put it out there that uh, in the interest of transparency, perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps Equinor would be willing to uh, make public what the regulator has asked for from them, um, but as, as to what that is at the moment, uh, the Australian public is very much in the dark. So we just don't know what the problems were or why Nopsima decided to delay approval for it? No, but they've, I mean, what they've done obviously is ask for further information which suggests that they don't have enough information to, to or they don't have the clarity of the information uh, you know, to, to give an approval. And were you surprised? Uh, no, uh, not at all. I mean, I, I think um, what Equinor uh, have put into the regulator as their first application um, in an area as environmentally significant as the bite. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really not sure how you could ever approve that. Um, in fact, I, you know, it, it's beyond me that uh, it's appropriate to be approving uh, oil drilling in the middle of the Great Australian Bite Marine Park. <laughs> Full stop. Um, but in other areas of the world where they're uh, the location is considered uh, environmentally very significant. Um, you know, r- second drilling rigs to, in order to be able to drill what's called a relief well if something goes wrong, and capping stacks in order to try and plug the plug the hole if something goes wrong are all required to be essentially on site. Um, and uh, you know, certainly to the best of my knowledge, um, there was no mention of that in the Equinor's uh, application. I think they they were suggesting that it would have to come from Singapore, and and it would take some time even to do that. Yeah, and and obviously the uh, just the remoteness and um, the, the complete lack of any uh, industrial infrastructure in the Great Australian Bight because it's, it's a whale sanctuary. Let's not forget that it's it's not a place that's supposed to have industrial infrastructure in it. Um, but the, the complete absence of any of that means that, uh, you know, if something goes wrong, there's, there's very little anyone's going to be able to do. So I'm wondering, in, you know, you, I know the last, the last time we spoke to you, you were in Norway, and because uh, Equinor is owned primarily, I think, of over 50% by the Norwegian government, what kind of response did you have in Norway when you took the message there about the bite and the proposal for drilling? Okay, it was overwhelmingly positive. I, I think it's very fair to say that the Norwegian uh, people were quite horrified when we uh, were able to give them presentations around what Equinor, you know, essentially the majority owned, their majority owned oil company, was proposing to do in the Great Australian Bight. Um, you know, we compared it to some of the very significant areas of the Norwegian coastline that have had oil and gas uh, exploration stopped. Um, and sort of said this is the equivalent of an Australian company coming into Norway and then pushing to drill in in, in those areas. Um, and obviously highlighted the importance of the bite and the fact that there's huge community opposition across southern Australia. And, um, yeah, I think on the whole, the Norwegian community were quite horrified by that and, and were very supportive of, 
of uh, doing what they can and standing with us to help, uh, you know, to help stop this proposal. Uh, and Peter, it's Dee here. Is it a, a bit of a celebration for pro- protesters in the battle to fight the bite? Well, certainly there's no approval. Um, so, you know, the longer we go down the line where there's no one with an approval to, to carry out uh, mm. what we consider to be high-risk exploration drilling in the bite is, is a very positive sign. Um, obviously, we're encouraging uh, Equinor to, to follow the lead of BP and Chevron and, and pull out of the bite. And that was certainly the message that we, we delivered in Norway, both to the, the Equinor team that's uh, leading on this uh, Great Australian Bite project, but also directly to the Equinor board. Uh, at their AGM, I mean, we were essentially saying this is not something that's supported in Australia. Um, it's it's not a good look at all for the company. This is in the middle of a very significant uh, marine park. Um, you know, it's it's not in your interest to continue to push on with this. And you know, we're obviously encouraging them to to follow the lead of BP and Chevron and pull out. But at the AGM, they must have continued to support it. Yeah, I mean that that was to be expected. I mean, they we we went to the AGM with the with a whole lot of people, the delegation from Australia, but then there was others from Norway as well who spoke against their, their proposal in the Great Australian Bite, um, which was quite amazing to see. Um, but, uh, you know, we anticipated they'd largely have a, a predetermined script that the CEO would respond to all that on, which he did. But I'd, I'd be absolutely, you know, shocked if, if that board has not gone away and is not in, you know, seriously considering what, you know, what on earth the company is actually doing with these leases down in the Great Australian Bight, given, given the overall context, I, you know, it makes very little sense. It, it does, yeah, absolutely right. But I'm also interested in the Nopthema process. I mean, this is the second time now they've sent Equinor back for more information, or at least, I believe it is. Is this the second time that they've done it, or the first? Uh, this is the first time they've asked for specifically further information, uh, but they, they, they pushed it back initially as well um, on the grounds of, of it being a complex assessment. I mean, we saw similar patterns with BP a few years ago. Each time it was, it was sort of, I guess, pushed back to the proponent, if you like. Um, there was a different uh, reason for it. Um, I guess, you know, the regulator Nopsema's, uh, you know, probing and trying to get very specific clarity around uh, you know what's being proposed um so yeah look it's like i said it's not a surprise i think the first time they said they needed more time because of the complexity of what was being proposed the second time here they've said they want you know obviously specifically uh you know further information on certain details which like i said we would would ask Equinor if they'd be willing to to, re, to release that because certainly the Australian public is keen to know what's going on. Sure. Can this go on indefinitely with Nopsema? I mean, can they just keep saying, no, we haven't got it right yet, keep going, maybe next time you get it right, no, not right, maybe next time, maybe next time, maybe next time. Is there any stopping point? Yeah, I mean, in theory I think it could, um, but there should be a stopping point. I mean, there should be a point where Nopsema can say, look, this this is just not a, a satisfactory application. I mean, I, I'd be, I'd really hope that at some point the Australian government is, is going to say, actually, drilling in the bite full stop uh, is is not something that uh, we're going to continue to to support and encourage. Um, yes. Those leases should never been have been released in the Great Australian Bite when they were. And I think we all need to take a step back and acknowledge that there's uh, now a lot more that's understood about the significance of the bite from an environmental perspective, but also the risks involved with any proposal to drill there and, and uh, that entire scenario needs to be reassessed. And I had understood that um, Nopsema was actually the final approval because I know uh, Senator 
Tim Storer, who's no longer in Parliament, had a bit, was looking for support for a bill to add uh, the Environment Minister for Environment's approval. Um, but he's not there anymore, so I imagine that bill now is, has lapsed. Um, yes, but what's interesting in the lead-up to, to the federal election, we um, there were commitments made by both the Labor Party and, and the now government uh, to carry out independent assessments of, of any NOPSEMA approval. Um, so there's a commitment by um, the, the Morrison government uh, there uh, to carry out an, any, an independent assessment, which would include both the resources minister and the environment minister, as well as the chief scientist. Um, well, that's, so that's, good, that's, good to, that's good to hear. That's good news, Peter. Yes, that is. Yeah. So uh, we can breathe easy for a little while. <laughs> Well, least. certainly for the next few months, um, mm. but, but obviously we need to, you know, continue to keep the pressure on, and and um, you know, whether the people across Southern Australia who, who are concerned about this proposal and Victoria uh, as well. I mean, Southern Victoria, some of the councils oh, here, absolutely, the whole of the surf mm. coast area there, right through Torquay and Warrnambool and those areas, very very strongly opposed uh, yes. to what's being proposed, and you know, and rightly so. I mean, if if you look at the oil spill modelling and you know what's possible if it goes wrong here. Um, you know, Australia's southern coastline uh, could be damaged. So, yes. you know, well, Peter, we responsible position. We're running out of time, unfortunately, but we certainly will be keeping the public informed about this issue. So important. And thank you so much for uh, coming on the show this morning. Thanks very much. Thanks, yeah. Peter. And that was uh, Peter Owen, the South Australia Director of the Wilderness Society. So, uh, yes, we'll so definitely... 60 days. 60 so days. So, has been provided with 60 days to submit the requested information to Novsema. So, we'll probably be speaking to Peter again. And we will, and we'll be speaking about it here as well. And now we're going to be speaking to Fergus Kennard, um, an economist from the Australian Conservation Foundation. Um, so this chat today is going to be about the BCA, the Business Council of Australia, and um, why the supermarket giants, Coles and Woolworths, are buying into the BCA. And it's a discussion about the environment, and ultimately we just want to get down to the bottom of this, and Fergus is going to help us today. So, Fergus, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. And um, so firstly, can you tell us a little bit about who the BCA are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the BCA, the Business Council of Australia, um, they're one of Australia's largest industry associations. Um, and for those who don't know what an industry association is, it's basically uh, a collection of uh, big companies within a certain industry or across multiple industries um, who kind of put their collective power together to advocate for policies um, that they want. The BCA is one of the biggest. Um, it's made up of about 120 or so members, and those members are, you know, some of Australia's biggest uh, biggest corporations. So obviously you mentioned there's Woolworths and Coles, the big supermarkets, but there's the big banks, telecommunication companies. Um, there's also fossil fuel companies like oil and gas companies. Um, there's big international tech companies. The BCA really has quite a broad church, quite mm. a variety um, of companies. Um, and they advocate across a really wide range of issues, kind of across across the policy spectrum. But over the last five to ten years, they've started to advocate more and more on climate and energy policy. And some of that advocacy hasn't been particularly great. And mm. we've certainly taken some issue with it. Um, and as part of the reason um, I have started to do a little bit more more work on them um, through my role at ACF. 
And why are why are the big companies buying into them? Essentially, what is it that they're getting out of it? Yeah, well, uh, in, industry associations like kind of any lobby group um, give you access uh, and the ability to, I guess, talk to public decision makers and politicians and kind of advocate for, uh, you know, law reform mm. policies that um, you might be interested in. Like I said, the BCA advocates across a variety of different policies, um, you know, taxation, workplace reform, um, health and safety, like, you know, the full gamut of yeah. what you'd imagine a business, uh, a business industry association would. But where they've started to advocate more and more increasingly is climate and energy policy, and some of that obviously hasn't been great. Um, back, you know, during uh, the, the carbon tax, they uh, were initially supportive of a price on carbon, but ultimately uh, shifted their position to kind of call for it to be scrapped and then celebrated um, the carbon tax eventual scrapping. They were resistant to the renewable energy target uh, back last year during the debate, the political debate around the national energy guarantee. They issued a tweet in their public Twitter account that said a 45% uh, emissions reduction target, which was um, the opposition of Labor's policy at the time, would be economy wrecking. Mm. Um, economy wrecking, that language was then used by um, and our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Mm. It was used by then Environment Minister Melissa Price, um, also Energy Minister Angus Taylor. Some of them actually used it on the floor of the Parliament. So they have quite a lot of influence. Um, I found that really interesting when I was on the website and I, I had a look at the video that you've done. So Fergus has done a video on the Australian um, website, the Australian Conservation Foundation. And it's about, and you do mention the language that ends up being sort of infiltrated into the politics so it's not just keeping it into business anymore. This is coming into people's homes pretty much and they're getting used to hearing this like jargon. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the reason that they are so influential is because, um, like I said, they do represent a lot of big kind of popular, respected Australian brands like Woolies and Coles. Mm. Um, and so when they speak up and say something, you know, people and politicians uh, listen by virtue of those brands. But kind of the other the other arm of why we're doing this work is we looked at the membership base and we found a subgroup of companies within the member um, the membership who have really strong brands also have quite credible uh, climate and energy policies certainly policies themselves on their own that are stronger than the BCA's policies the policies they're advocating for at a state and federal level and so we decided to start talking to these companies and raising the issue that within their own brands, they're getting on with it, they're doing some good stuff on climate, but they're still a member of this lobby group um, who is advocating for kind of much worse, mm. lower ambition, more damaging climate and energy policy. And that's kind of formed the basis um, of the campaign mm. we're running now and, you know, the conversations we're having with Coles and Woolies and what we're asking, you know, our supporters to get out and have the, have the same conversation and, and talk about that kind of um, apparent hypocrisy between mm. their own uh, their own climate policies and that of the BCA. Yeah, because it's really hypocritical of Coles and Woolies because they're making, they are making some steps forward. So Coles are investing in energy efficiency and recycling, Woolies, solar energy in their lighting and the fridges, but then they seem to be buying into this lobbying group. It doesn't really make any sense. No, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't think it makes sense. I, don't, I think a lot of our... Uh, our supporters and, you know, regular Australians would have a look at that and say, you know, that doesn't make sense. You know, look, obviously, um, everyone has a role to play 
um, in a transition to a, a cleaner economy. I, I was, you know, Colton Woolies and a variety of other companies could always increase their ambition, always be doing more. But to give them credit, they have taken some some really positive steps over the last couple of years to to raise their ambition and and do more. And look, frankly, you know, for a lot of in a lot of circumstances, it's actually been kind of coming in their you know their own business interest to do more with the price of. Uh, renewable energy increasing, and obviously the um, the great benefit that increasing your own energy efficiency um, can bring to a business. So they're doing they're doing great stuff, and they're starting to move quick. But yeah, it begs the question then: uh, why be a part of a an industry association that is kind of so at odds with that that own positive action you're taking um, within your own brand? Yeah, I mean, it's almost as if they're, they're trying to have, you know, as the saying was a bob both ways. You know, they're trying to keep their foot in with a particular business view that, um, you know, um, environmental policies aren't good for business. They're trying to keep in with that group. But on the other hand, even, you know, the actions they're taking probably good for PR, but in the end, good for the bottom line as well. I mean, this whole clinging to fossil fuel is so backward in mm-hmm. Australia. I mean, we've seen huge investors just pull out. I mean, people who do know about making money, it feels so backward. Yeah, it does. And I think, um, I think, look, part of the part of the reason is, is a practical one. I think every you know every member of an industry association, the BCA or otherwise, are in it for a reason. The BCA advocates off, like I said, a, a, advocates for a vast range of policies, not just climate energy. And, you know, there's probably very good reasons for companies like Coles and Woolies to be part of a representative body like that um, to talk about issues that are important to them. It may very well be that, uh, you know, over the last decade, climate energy policy hasn't been a reason why the supermarkets have been part of the Business Council. There may be other policy areas that they, you know, they want public advocacy for. And look, that's, that's fine. I guess what we're saying now, we're in a climate emergency or climate crisis, we really can't have any of that grey area anymore. You know, any relationship you have, I think, a climate and energy screen um, of that policy is kind of is kind of vital. It's it's probably not okay in, in 2019 to, um, you know, be part of an association that advocates for climate and policy that's not in step with your own, um, even if that is not, you know, a particularly important vehicle that you've used that association for in the past and obviously that's part of the reason we're now running this campaign to kind of draw the links between those hypocritical policy positions and say look guys it's just not good enough in 2019 you've got to be you've got to be squared off and aligned in any relationship um any business or advocacy relationship you have Mm. So this could it be that uh Coles has just become the first major retailer to sign up to the lobby group's Australian supplier payment code which is different to what Coles had agreed to in March 2017, where they were meant to uh, pay small business merchandise suppliers within 14 days, but the Business Council of Australia Payments Code requires signatories to pay all small business suppliers within 30 days. Could it be just as simple as getting those extra 16 days and not really paying the small business suppliers. You know, it seems a bit strange, <laughs> oh, look, doesn't it? Look, I don't, um, I don't know. Look, I don't, to be honest, I don't know, um, you know, much about, uh, the BCA's policy and advocacy beyond, mm. um, its climate energy policies. Obviously, um, by virtue of my, my role at the Australian Conservation Foundation, you know, climate energy policy is square within my site, so mm. I probably can't comment too much. Well, I think you sort that, of mentioned but, that though but, you weren't quite sure why they signed it. And to me, you know, just sort of 
reading between the lines, it's like, oh, small business supplies. You were getting paid within 14. Now we've joined the Business Council of Australia. You get paid within 30. It's always so complex. It's yeah. kind of like that, you know, old man magazine, Spy versus Spy. You've got to be yeah. And there's so many an codes, so isn't many there, for the yeah. Business Council of Australia? Sure. Yeah. yeah, look, it is, and that's, that's quite a good point. You know, it is, it is very complex. And, you know, the BCA, like I said, it represents a... a a vast cross-section of Australian, large Australian companies, and it also advocates across a vast section of um, policy areas. And really what we're trying to focus on with this campaign is to raise um, the climate and energy kind of advocacy issue and put that front and centre of the BCA, kind of put that on the spotlight of what the BCA is advocating for and put put that collection of companies that we believe are kind of at odds with that policy and put them in the spotlight as well and say, hey, guys, this has got to be the most important issue when it comes to assessing your relationship to the BCA. We know you advocate across, you know, this vast um, range of policies, but, you know, there's got to be a trigger on climate and energy. If that doesn't square off, then, like, kind of none of the other policy areas, you know, really matter. Yeah. And, Fergus, what should we do? Yeah, well, we're asking right now um, for people to reach out to... uh, well, particularly Coles and Woolworths, um, and just ask them. Have a conversation with them. Uh, social media is a great way to do that. Mm-hmm. Jump on Facebook. Um, ask them, you know, either why, if, you, if you're not satisfied with the explanations I've given you this morning, why they're a member <laughs> of the Business Council of Australia. And if you just want them, you know, out, tell them that. Yeah. Um, tell them to leave. And most importantly, I think, tell them that, you know, their relationship with um, the Business Council forms a part of their climate and energy policy. While they're a member, um, that advocacy is their advocacy, and while they're doing fantastic stuff within their brand, um, that you know, they that need to still be doing forms more. the basis mm. of their action. Mm. Um, so yeah, we're asking uh, businesses to review that relationship on the basis of the climate and energy policy that the BCA advocate for, and if they do that review and they don't think uh, that you know the policy of the BCA squares with their own, um, that they consider stepping away. So Coles and Woolworths are the companies we're focused on at the moment. Like you said, we've, we put out a video um, last week explaining that relationship. But if you do the ACF website, there's also kind of more uh, more information on the BCA itself, some of its track record on climate energy policy. Be welcome to read more about that and understand kind of their role in the climate energy debate over the last 10 years. And we've also called out... Um, kind of a broader subset of companies of which this um, dynamic is also at play and who are also worthy of, uh, of contact in the conversation. Mm, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fergus. And it was a real fascinating insight into actually what's going on um, with the Business Council of Australia and why Coles and Woolies are buying into it. Um, and if you missed any of these interviews today, you can listen back on Monday Breakfast at 3cr.org.au. And, um, Thanks, yeah. Fergus. Thank you so much, Fergus. Yes, and another busy show. Seven starting kicking off seven fifteen yeah. with po- Popo Moco. Yes, and their their show coming up at Footscray Community Arts Centre. We spoke to Professor Richard Tanta about Pine Gap and its role. Uh, should Australia enter a conflict with the U.S.? Um, Senator Rex Patrick on uh, Christopher Pine's move uh, to join EY and. Um, and, and Peter Fer- Owen. Yeah, and Peter Price Owen and Fergus. Fergus Canard from the ACF. Fantastic. Thanks all for listening in. It's been great to have your company this morning. And Women Online will be coming up next.
We'll be back next Monday. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.